If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20. In just a moment, we'll begin in verse 33, and we will read to the end of the chapter. Uh, if, if you're a historian, you'll remember that we entered Acts chapter 20 on November 6th, and we're finishing it today. Uh, I want to give you a little heads up on where we're going. If uh, I stick to the plan, which I think is very doable, uh, we will finish the book of Acts, finish it, uh, the last Sunday in May. Uh, so last Sunday in May, we'll finish Acts, then we'll have a summer sermon series, and then in the fall, probably August, the first Sunday in August, we'll begin a new series on an Old Testament book. So that's, that's where we're going. But we've come to the final goodbye. And I know you might be slightly reticent and say, really, John, we've heard this before. You've stretched the final goodbye out since early January. Well, we're finally coming to the tearful end today. Last week, we looked at the benediction that Paul pronounced over them when he said, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. And you would think, all right, it's perfect timing. That's, that's the high note to end on. Let's exchange our hugs and kisses Put Paul on the boat, wave goodbye, watch him sail off down the coast into the sunset. That's not what happens. At least not yet. Before we have that final moment, Paul has one more word for them. And it's a postscript of sorts. You remember writing a letter to someone as a kid and you write out the letter and then you say, sincerely, John. And then after that, you think of something you wanted to include. So you write P.S. Sometimes you'll have a P.P.S. or a P.P.P.S. You have the postscripts, these uh, notes or, oh, by the way, I, I forgot to mention, you need to know this as well. You have that at the very end of the letter. And so we've, I know this is a uh, speech that Paul delivers to them, but just think of it as a letter. He's, he's already told them, you will not see my face again. I'm innocent of your blood because I declare to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to the flock. Care for the church which was bought by the blood of Christ. Be alert and on guard uh, for uh, from wolves within and without. And then he gives this benediction. And then comes the postscript. And he says, P.S. May giving characterize your ministry. P.S. I want you to be givers as you care for the church. We're going to look at that postscript in a moment, and then the goodbye scene at the close of the chapter. But first, let's pray together. Father God, unless you work, 
Unless you open our eyes, we remain blind and ignorant. We see this with Jesus and his parables. Unless we are given eyes to see, we will not understand. So would you this morning work through your word by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. That which you would have for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 20, beginning in verse 33. And now I commend you to God. Well, that's verse 32. (laughs) Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he'd spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. What we see in this P.S. is a call from Paul to follow his example. And we've seen this before in in verse 18. He says, you know how I lived among you the whole time I was with you. Verse 19, I served the Lord with all humility. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I taught in public and from house to house. Verse 24, my highest goal is to finish my course in ministry that I received from the Lord. Verse 31, remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is setting forth his example. And he continues that in this postscript. He says, I didn't cover your, I didn't covet your possessions. I was bivocational and not a burden on you. And so I was able to provide for myself and to help for those, give help to those in need. So thinking through Paul's example, he's he's telling these elders, remember the example that I set for you. But it's not simply that Paul wants us and wanted them to follow him. He wants them to follow him as he follows Christ. Paul is saying, my ministry should be a pattern for your ministry, but it's not because I'm a perfect guru. It's because I'm following the pattern of Christ's ministry. And we'll see that in a moment in verse 35. So that's the point. Follow my example as I follow the Lord's example. 
And we see him say first in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I didn't covet your money or your possessions. This gives us a wonderful opportunity to be reminded of the definition of coveting. And we'll, I'll appeal to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 81. Coveting is a couple things, or it's a couple ways it's manifested. First is being discontent with our own state. And we'll talk about that more in a moment, being discontent with our own state. And second, it is envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all unreasonable motions and affections toward anything that belongs to our neighbor. Right? This is going to be... Uh, this is going to be very uncomfortable how familiar this is to all of us. Just think of comments or thoughts we've made. Man, that person has a lot of nice stuff. I wish my house was decorated like her house. I wish my house could be as large as his house. I live in a dump. It's embarrassing. Life must be pretty nice to live in a house like that. We could say, I wish I married someone like that person. Life would be easy. They seem to have it all together. She seems wonderful. Why couldn't I have married someone like her? You know, all, all these other families go on great vacations. I ought to be able to do something like that. If only I could be successful like him. If only uh, my body looked more like hers. If only my parents could be normal, like my friend's parents. You know, this, these are all fruits and evidences of covetousness. And we need to know that it is serious. And the Bible condemns covetousness in the strongest terms possible. Apart from the saving work of Jesus, covetousness will keep you out of heaven. That's how serious this is. Paul describes it this way in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. It is a dangerous, damnable sin. And it's not simply that we're desiring or longing for something. Simply having a desire or longing is not sinful, But what's bad is when we want something, we desire something that belongs to someone else. We want to possess what someone else owns, what belongs to them. Or it could simply be a desire that makes us discontent. 
right? We complain about our house. We complain about our spouse. We complain about the quality of our possessions. We complain about the quantity of our possessions. We complain about the general state of life. We're discontent with it. That is another manifestation of covetousness. If you want help in identifying moments you might be coveting, just ask, are you content? Contentment is the opposite of covetousness. It's the exact opposite. Covetousness says, I need that. I won't be happy unless I have that. Life isn't fair. I want that. But contentment says, I have what I need. I'm happy in the Lord. He does good to all. And I want nothing more than what I have. This, oh, this is convicting. If you aren't content, then you're almost certain, certainly coveting something. So Paul brings this up. He brings up coveting in the context of ministry, which, by the way, is probably when coveting is, when it gets really ugly. When it's in the ministry, maybe it's uh, a pastor or elders wanting something that other pastors or elders have. Maybe with something that's even uglier than that is a pastor wanting what those in the congregation have. But Paul says, I did not covet your silver, your gold, your apparel. Instead, I followed the example of Christ. The Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul were not in the religion business to become wealthy. And he's able to say this. And he's able to rest because he believes something he previously said. In that, in that benediction, he talks about an inheritance. He believes and knows that God had his inheritance. That God was guarding it and keeping it undefiled, untouched, safely in heaven. And thus he was content to live a simple life. And specifically here, he cites his bivocational ministry. He says, I didn't covet your possessions. I earned a living with my own hands. He says in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul was bivocational when he was in Ephesus. We know that he was skilled as a tent maker. And of course, that didn't make him rich, but it supplied him with enough to provide for his essential needs and for the needs of those who were with him. I was listening to a podcast this past week that was talking about church planting in small towns and church planting in rural places. And many times, pastors in small towns or rural settings must be bivocational. They must be bivocational or else that congregation isn't going to have a pastor. And we are reminded here that a pastor being bivocational is an admirable thing. 
A bivocational minister should never be considered second rate. In many cases, it's the difference between a congregation having a pastor or not having a pastor. I will say that obviously I am not bivocational. And I'm very grateful for the salary provided by this congregation um, that uh, I am able to give you my attention, full attention during the week, and that Molly is able to stay at home with our girls. And it's going to sound self-serving, but Paul is not commanding here for pastors to be bivocational. He's not saying you must be bivocational. Elsewhere, Paul makes a strong case for paying pastors. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Am I just saying these things? No, I am agreeing with the law of Moses, which says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Paul will repeat this Old Testament citation in 1 Timothy 5, and he'll add, the laborer deserves his wages. So there are times when it's appropriate to pay a minister, and there are times when it might be appropriate for a minister to be bivocational. I was reminded of a really neat example of this uh, a couple weeks ago at Presbytery. So whenever a new minister comes into our presbytery, whenever a new minister is, is called to a church, whether they're senior pastor or an associate minister or youth pastor, whoever, uh, there is a letter that is put in a white book. It's, it's just a stack of papers. But everyone at presbytery will get a copy of their compensation. Their call from the congregation, their number of vacation days, their salary, their housing allowance, their benefits, anything like that. It's all written out. The entire presbytery can see it, and presbytery has to approve it. And I have seen instances where presbytery would stop and say, are are you sure this is going to be enough for you? Well, that happened at this previous presbytery meeting. What was interesting is that when I looked on the sheet... It said this pastor, his salary was going to be zero, and his housing allowance was going to be zero, and his benefits were going to be zero. And so people stood up, we have questions about this. This pastor has a unique story. He's just been called to be an associate minister at a church in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was a surgeon, was trained, went to medical school, served as a surgeon for several years, And in his words, in God's kind providence, he saw it fit to give me epilepsy, which would disqualify him from being a surgeon and send him into early retirement. And he has found his way into a church. He wanted to volunteer in a church. He receives payment through insurance. Um, that's where his salary comes from. And so he wanted help and volunteer in a church, and that has uh, worked its way through to the point where now he is ordained and is serving as a church. And so we see there, there are cases when a minister might be bivocational. There are cases when, where a minister might work for free for a congregation. There are times when a minister will be 
paid as well. Paul could have insisted upon support from this church. But because of the particular circumstances, he chose not to. He didn't want the progress of the gospel to be hindered. He didn't want to be a burden to the church. He didn't want to give any reason to the false teachers to speak against him. He wanted the ability to be able to help others who were needy. And so he says in verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. Paul is concerned about pastoral care and taking care of his own needs. And apparently this is said in contrast to what was being done by the false teachers who preached and ministered for selfish gain and ambition. And then Paul says something interesting. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's a trivia question for you. Which of the four Gospels is Paul quoting from? None. We don't have this quotation. It's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Apparently, this was one of those teachings that had been heard by eyewitnesses and then passed on in the early church. It had been preserved by the early church, but not included in the gospel writings. This reminds us of something we already know, that there are lots of things that Jesus did and said that are not recorded in the scriptures. I mean, at the end of John's gospel, John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I'll admit, I read that and I'm tempted to think, John, are you being a little hyperbolic there? Are you exaggerating just a little bit? The words couldn't hold all that, the world couldn't hold all the books that contain what Jesus did. But think of it, John's simply saying that the sheer magnitude of all that Jesus accomplished for the church as the eternal Son of God, through his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the magnitude of that is limitless. John says, I have not written down everything Jesus did. We don't have a full record of it. And I know it probably drives you crazy at times. You know, there are large chunks of Jesus' life that are not covered. You've got the birth narrative, and then you've got him getting separated from his parents at age 12 in the temple, and then he's a grown man being baptized by John and beginning his ministry. There's so many details we don't have, and yet we, again, here's contentment. We have to be content with what we have. I really believe that after this life, we will learn all we need to know to satisfy our curiosity. 
in seeing Him face to face and talking with those other saints who have gone before us. But for now, we have to be content. And again, this gives me an opportunity to talk about an important attribute of Scripture. That would be the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture teaches that the Scriptures contain everything we need to know for salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. That's why I wanted to take the moment for that mailer. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. The scriptures tell us everything we need to know. You know, different folks will struggle with scripture in different ways. You can take theological liberals, for example, who will struggle with the authority of scripture. Paul will be dismissed the Old Testament will be dismissed. And I've, I've heard it described in this way. I've heard someone say, you know, the Bible is a lot like the manger in which Jesus was born. There is some divinity there. But there's also a lot of straw. There's also a lot of straw. And so the question is, well, how do you determine what's divine from what's straw? Well, for you're putting yourself in a place of authority to decide. You're in the position to judge which is which. And so theological liberals will have trouble with the authority of Scripture. Well, what about us? What about your Bible-believing Christians? What would we struggle with? The sufficiency of Scripture. We always, well, we have a tendency to want more. Kevin DeYoung talks about this in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. He says this, The sufficiency of Scripture is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. We can say all the right things about the Bible and even read it regularly. But when life gets difficult or just a bit Boring. We look for new words, new revelation, and new experiences to bring us close to God. And then Kevin DeYoung gives an example. We feel rather ho-hum about the New Testament's description of heaven. But we are mesmerized by the accounts of school-aged Children who claim to have gone to heaven and come back. He says we can easily operate as if the Bible were not enough. If we could only have something more than the scriptures, then we would really be close to Jesus and know his love for us. Remember that the Scriptures are sufficient. When it comes to the Scriptures, everything is on a need-to-know basis. Everything you need to know for salvation is written in the Bible. We do not need any new revelation from heaven. What happens when you open that door for new revelation? Things can get weird very quickly, and all of a sudden you have something like Mormonism. 
We have to be content with what we've been given. So don't let Paul's quotation here of Jesus open a door for you or open the floodgates where now you're investigating all these things that Jesus might have done or said that are not recorded in the Scriptures. Paul is reminding them of something they've heard, something that came from eyewitnesses, from one of the apostles. That's an important point. And it's that it's better to give. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's a pretty good summation of Christ's ministry, isn't it? That blessing and joy is experienced in giving, not receiving. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's the P.S. at the end. I've followed Christ's example. You follow my example. And in doing so, your ministry will be one that is characterized by Giving. I want to read to you the opening prayer found in the Valley of Vision. If you do not have the Valley of Vision, I commend it to you. Um, it, it, is, it is an incredible book. It is a collection of Puritan prayers that has been gathered together. You can get the really nice uh, calfskin one that's... Uh, for book nerds, you might really like that. And then you've got just the paperback with the 1980s uh, cover on the front. But it is a fantastic resource. I want to read to you the first prayer in it that really gets at what Paul is commending. The prayer says, Lord, high and holy, Meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to a valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Again, I commend that to you as a wonderful resource and help to the Christian life. But it gets at this P.S. 
that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's the final word to them. There's no P-P-S. We then see the goodbye. And it comes by the sea. There comes the breaking of their fellowship. And Luke says in verse 36, And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he'd spoken to them that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul prays with them. I had the thought, what, what would the contents of that prayer be? You know, it's probably all the things he'd been saying in the preceding paragraphs. If, you, if, if we just read back to verse 17, 18, I think we'll probably have the gist of that prayer. Then there's weeping. And Luke tells us why. It's because of this word Paul had told them that they would not see his face again. <clears throat> you know, we often... We may think of Paul as a fighter, a polemicist, someone who is just a bit of a bull in a china shop, frequently in conflict with unbelievers. But this verse shows us that Paul's churches had deep affection for him. He was a gentle pastor that they deeply loved. And it grieved them that they would not see his face again. And I think for those of us who are old enough to have buried a loved one, this is something we all understand. It's much easier to say goodbye to someone when we plan on seeing them again. Even if it's a long way off. But to know I won't see his or her face again in this life. It cuts us to the heart. And that's what causes real grief and pain and sorrow. And yet, what was the promise that these Ephesian elders had in Christ? What's the promise that you and I have in Christ? It's simply that every Christian goodbye is always a see you later. It's not goodbye forever. It's goodbye for now. We will not taste eternal death. We will not cease to exist once our heart stops beating and our lungs stop breathing. Our soul upon death is immediately brought into the presence of our Lord. And there we will be at peace and will await King Jesus to bring about the consummation of all things and the renewal of all things. Through his life, death, and resurrection, every Christian who has put on Christ 
and hidden himself in the rock of ages. For them, every goodbye is simply a see you later. It's an until we meet again. Surely that hope was something they had, something the Ephesian elders had, and it is something we have as well. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. I also thank you for the elders that lead your church. Father, I thank you for our elders, for uh, Bill and Frank and Lord willing, Jordan. Father, I pray that you would continue to encourage them and strengthen them as they shepherd and lead this congregation. Would our people be those who pray for their elders? Father, they are very generous with me and thoughtful with me and encouraging to me. Would they be encouraging towards our ruling elders as well? We're reminded in Ephesians 4 that elders are gifts that Christ has given to the church. So we do thank you for them. Father, we ask that you would help us to follow Paul's example as he followed your example. We ask that we would be those who are quick to give and have hearts that resonate with these words that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And Father, would we rest in the hope of the gospel that a death is not a final farewell, but a see you later until we meet again. Father, we can boldly say that because of the work that Jesus Christ has done and because he is alive today, reigning and ruling on his throne. So would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to be good stewards of the gifts you've entrusted to us and help us to love our neighbor, help us to love our neighbor well so that you might be honored and they might be encouraged and strengthened. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.